One, One two, two, three. three. <laughs> yeah, okay, that'll be a thing. <laughs> you uh, ready to launch into it? Yeah, let's do this. All right, and welcome back to another uh, fortnight of Your Words Against Mine, a competitive reading podcast between siblings. I'm your co-host, Thomas Dempsey. And I am your co-host, Elizabeth Connor. And it is going to be a very eventful episode indeed. (laughs) (sighs) You all right, Thomas? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm just looking over some notes here. Okay. (laughs) It's been, it's been, it has been, it has been. That was the Beatles song that was never released. Oh. <laughs> I'm a little disappointed how funny I found that. <laughs> oh, me. I haven't even started drinking yet. What am we doing? Uh. All right. So, this is our third of official well fourth official episode third of the year and it is the end of our first month or getting on to it and uh more to the point for yours truly it is the end of my first reading challenge which was assigned to me by elizabeth about a month ago or for uh, four weeks and we'll be getting into that later in the episode but uh first off what i thought we could do is uh, talk a little bit about how things have been going for us. So, Elizabeth, why don't you tell us what haven't you been reading? That's my that's my uh, sort of a quippy segment that I'm introducing very organically. <laughs> I hadn't even talked about it before now. <laughs> so, yeah. haven't been reading any books about making podcasts at all. <laughs> that have advised me to incorporate segments. Let's see here. What haven't I been reading? Um, okay, listeners. So, a little background hey, information. Listen. I am a public school music teacher during the time of coronavirus. And we had winter break. And we were supposed to return back to school way back on the 4th of January. And... My district made the decision to do virtual learning for 100% of the students for three weeks. For the first three weeks of the year, we did all virtual learning and I was working from home. And then this past Monday was my first day back doing face-to-face education. So this week that we're recording this has been my first week in the classroom with students doing my music thing. I'm glad to be back at work. I'm glad to be back with my students. I miss them a lot. Working from home was different. How different was it? (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously, like, I had, you know, I would spend a little bit of time every day, like, responding to emails and providing student feedback to assignments Um, But it was different in the way that for me, being as being a quote unquote related arts teacher, it wasn't as intensive as my job normally is when I'm doing face to face instruction. 
Right. Um, so I had a lot more time to like do things around the house and, you know, help whenever we have out of our 11 year old help him with his virtual learning. I had a lot more time to like do that and help keep him focused. So it was a lot more of like my home life was my full-time job and my work life was like this other thing that I had to do. Uh, yeah. Okay. So now you're getting back more into a sort of work, li- work life balance. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I'm happy for that. I hope, things continue to go well so far my first week back has been great um i'm sure it will continue that way i really love my job that is that is that's good so uh, i've uh i've been listening to some music let's see a couple weeks back nintendo was doing a winter sale on their e-store so i took that as an opportunity to pick up a couple of games i've been eyeballing one was this puzzle game called uh, Mr. Driller Drill Land. It's like a modern version of an old sort of Tetris-esque puzzler where you're sort of breaking blocks and forming chains of blocks and trying not to get uh, caught up in blocks. And uh, it's a pretty fun game on its own. The interface is a little clunky, but, you know, the core mechanics are solid. I will say this. The soundtrack does not have to go as hard as it does, and it does go hard. So, to our listeners, if you want a little treat, go on YouTube, type in "Drill Mr. Driller Drill Land OST, and you'll probably come along like a playlist of the soundtrack for this game, and it is just wild. It is just no-holds-barred-like coke and adderall (laughs) jazz and it's just like i i like it it's good for playing video games when i listen to it on its own i get a little anxious because it's so all over the place you almost it's the kind of music where you need a game to take your mind off the music because it's it's just a it's a lot what's the name of the game it's called mr driller drill land and it is Super anime, the score bops. <laughs> okay. And that's what I haven't been reading this week. Cool. Um, All right. So, so when we, I... Uh, huh? Sorry, excuse me. So in when I thought, you know, when I could tell that my time doing virtual learning and working from home was coming to an end... Um, I decided I really needed to like step up my Netflix game sure. and, and I, that's just something I feel like I need to do in general because typically in my free time or our downtime here at home, it's usually like I'm reading something or I'm scrolling through TikTok, but I decided it was time for me to get my Netflix game on. So I sat down and in two days I watched Bridgerton. Okay, well, that uh, might make a good segue into a big topic of discussion for this episode. But uh, before we get to that, why don't we take a quick break? Sounds good. All right, and we're back to Your Words Against Mine, a competitive reading podcast between siblings. Elizabeth, you were just about to tell us about Bridgerton. Yes, 
We've talked about it on this podcast and it was the reason why I issued to you the first challenge that I gave you, which was to read two books from the Bridgerton series written by Julia Quinn. And um, so I decided that in addition to upping my Netflix game, that I would see what this Bridgerton show was about because I've read all of the like listicles that have been put out and shared on Facebook about, you know, how hot the actors and actresses are, how hot some of the scenes are, blah, 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 blah. And I watched it. And to be honest, I loved it. Like, it's like a spicy down, Downton Abbey. Yeah. You remember when that was a thing? Um, it's like a spout. It's like a spicy Downton Abbey. Okay. Um, I want, I, that, uh, invites a question that will uh, come up again later when I talk more about my, my stuff. Um, is there, do you sense a sort of upstairs downstairs element to it? No, actually there's not. Um, it very much is only focused on the upstairs. It's only focused on the actual family that is a part of proper London society. Right. It's just the whole, like, I guess the whole, like, historical romance setting and, and like, tropes are very much there. And I did, I was, like, super into Downton Abbey for a couple of seasons. So just kind of the overall feel of Bridgerton reminded me of elements of Downton Abbey. Yeah, which, um... For those who haven't seen it, I believe Downton Abbey was early 20th century because they referenced the Titanic. Was that uh, Bridgerton's thoroughly 19th century? Yeah, it it takes place in 1813 England. Right. Um, That's, is that Victorian England? Who who was Queen? Charlotte. Charlotte. So it's and King George. Char- George. George. Georgian. King George and Queen Charlotte, or at least that's who the monarchy is in the show. So yeah, so in the show anyway, King George and Queen Charlotte are the monarchies that are ruling. Um, And everything I've seen, uh, every article, listicle, everything I've seen just talks about like Regency. Like Regency England. Right. So... I don't know if that's the name of this historical period. I feel like this is about the same time that like, um, you know, that like Jane Austen's books were set. So anyway, the show was really good. The show was very much different than the first Bridgerton book, which was the Duke and I, it definitely, like, you know, the writers of the show and like, they very much took some liberties, but the liberties that they took worked. So I was, I mean, you know, I was a-okay with everything not being exactly the same um, as they were in the books. And yes. I don't know if you've seen this, but they have made an announcement that season two of Bridgerton is is happening. Yeah, I've been noticed. I've been seeing some, like, uh, casting rumors and petitions for people to get cast. Yeah. So, you know, if you've read the Bridgerton books... Or if you've heard of them, then you know that it's a series of eight books because there's eight siblings in this family. So book number one, The Duke and I, focuses on Daphne, who is the oldest daughter 
hold on. Okay, well, I I I accept your I, I accept what you're saying, but goodness sakes, Daphne does not factor in at all to the books I read. <laughs> so when you just start popping off saying like Daphne, I'm like, like did I read, read the, the right books? <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Did I just read 700 pages of a book series that, uh, but yeah, no, okay. I, I, I did pick up on that though, that each of the Bridgerton siblings is named for a uh, subsequent alphabetical letter. Yeah. They're named in alphabetical order. So like, it's like Anthony, Benedict, Colin, Daphne, etc. Eloise. Francesca. Francesca. Oh, goodness sakes. Francesca. Gregory. Uh, everything you have. Gregory. And, <laughs> and Hyacinth. Hyacinth. I, I remember Hyacinth. Gregory caught me by surprise. <laughs> he does not leave much of an impression in the book I read. Well, and, and you know, in The Duke and I, he doesn't leave much of an impression because in the book, he's like 10. Okay. Yeah, well, he's, uh, he's aged up. In um, the one I read. Yeah. And uh, what do you think? Do we need to just jump into the book discussion yeah, on this book podcast? So, any, well, any, let me let me say this about the Bridgerton show. It's really good. I highly recommend it. Do not watch episode five and six with your parents. With your folks. People gay getting busy. Yeah. Yeah. There's... There's... Days. Days. Days be doing it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So why don't you tell it. us why don't you tell us about your Bridgerton reading experience? Yeah, and I will do that after the break. <laughs> Sounds good. And we're back. Do you like all these breaks we're taking? But uh yeah, we were just talking about Bridgerton. Yeah, we were talking about Bridgerton the show. Yeah, we're talking about Bridgerton in the show, and now we're going to talk about the books, because I had to read two of them. Yes, you did. That was our first challenge. The first reading challenge of the year. Now, Elizabeth, how many of them have you read? I've read the first two, so I've read The Duke and I, and I've read The the Viscount Who Loved Me. Okay. Now, you mentioned Daphne being book one. Yeah. Who's book two? Anthony. Anthony. Okay, so they aren't holding to the alphabetical order, Dealey, when it comes to, I guess, the narrative framework. I would assume not. Now, seeing as how I only read the first two books, I can't say that to be true, but that's right. my assumption. Well, I, mean, I mean, it's already sort of screwed because you start with Daphne, you, you do uh, Anthony second. Mm-hmm. So that's like breaking the order already, but... Yeah, I, uh, it's interesting. Who is the authorial, or the narrative voice, primarily, would you say, of the second book? Um. Is it, uh, Anthony, or is it his wife? It, it very much switches between the two. So, you'll have a chapter, from what I remember, because I reread The Duke and I, I I have not reread The Viscount Who Loves Me. From what I recall the narrative viewpoint switches back and forth between Anthony yes, no, that's how it works. and his love interest. The, 
narrative viewpoint switches from what I recall in the Viscount, the Viscount who loved me switches back and forth between Anthony and his love interest um, with occasional narrative with a occasional narrative viewpoint of Lady Whistledown. Lady who now? Lady Whistledown. She's the woman who writes like the gossip brag for high London society. Okay, okay so, so there's, there's a, a framing, framing device to it. to it. Yeah. Okay. Now, you, you read, read books, books one and two. two. I read books five and six because those were the only ones that the library had and I could not, I could, I literally could not pay somebody to give me these books because they were not in stores. Mm -hmm. uh, at least not in the stores I looked around in. So uh, I managed to get a hand on some uh, mass market paperbacks. I got uh, book number five, To Sir Philip with Love. I got book number six, When He Was Wicked. And I started with book five, which is uh, the story of Eloise Bridgerton. Yeah. And it is the story of her marriage or uh, sub relationship and subsequent marriage to uh, Sir Philip who is a uh, widower with two children. And uh, the book starts with the death of his wife, who is a cousin to the Bridgerton family. And Eloise starts up a correspondence with him, wishing him, uh, uh, I guess, condolences in the wake of the wife's death. Mm -hmm. And they start up, I guess, a... a uh, correspondence together which culminates in him after about a year proposing marriage to her through letter so on the spur of the moment she runs off to the countryside to like visit him and just sort of like get a sense a sense on the guy mm -hmm. and when she gets there she's just sort of like comes to learn about him he's kind of a uh, sort of a more rugged type He's like a botanist by trade. He's always working outdoors. And uh, he. she also comes to know his children who have sort of been, I guess, uh, not like lacking in uh, direction. Uh-huh. And that's where a lot of the drama of the book comes from. I'm leaving uh, some stuff out, but uh, that's the general overview. And of the two... It's actually a pretty interesting um, dynamic between the two books because I definitely read the second book faster than the first, but a lot of that just feels like as of a result of more happening uh -huh. in To Sir Philip. Whereas uh, When He Was Wicked feels a lot more uh, compact or... Uh, I don't know. the The focus of the book is much tighter. Okay. Around just the two main characters and their sort of feelings for each other. Now, in but, when he uh, was wicked, who were the yes. characters? The well, here's, here's why, why I suspected that the series was operating in alphabetical order, order because the sixth book stars Francine or Francesca. Goodness yeah, sakes. Francesca. I spent the first half of this book calling her Francine. <laughs> Because I've never seen how Francesca was spelled in print. <laughs> and then when I thought about it, I started getting angry because Francesca sounds like it should be spelled with a J. Like Fran Jessica. 
Francesca. That's how I've always like pictured it, and I've never seen it in print. So it was like half halfway through the book that I finally figured out how that name was supposed to be pronounced. And then I got mad because Francesca is spelled F-R-A-N-C-Esca, not F-R-A-N-C-H-Esca, like you would expect a ch to sound. And, and so, like, the last couple of days have just been me working out my type 5 on Francesca. But, uh, yeah, anyway. She's the main character in the book. And her uh, significant other is Sir Michael. I don't know if he's a sir or not, but his name is Michael. And, uh, point of fact, he is not her romantic partner at the start of the book, or even her, well... A potential partner because at the start of the book and this might have been covered in another Bridgerton novel I don't know but at the start of the book she's married to a guy named John who is Michael's cousin and surrogate brother essentially and <laughs> and he gets John gets a headache and by the end of chapter 2 he's dead oh it's so good uh, no, it's literally like they're hanging out. Michael has loved Francesca since the day he saw her, which of course was like when she was betrothed to John. Mm -hmm. And their entire relationship, he's been like just torn up with guilt uh, about his feelings for his uh, surrogate brother's wife. And that has sort of spurred him towards a life of rakishness he's sort of a notorious like womanizer sleeps around like never anything the book makes it very clear never anything too scandalous or mm -hmm. too harmful because they it's very much that thing of like having him be dangerous without like being a turnoff i guess mm -hmm. but in any rate his whole deal is that he loves francesca more than anybody and it kills him that uh he can never have her and so then, at the start of the book, John dies, Francesca's widowed, and uh, Michael becomes the heir to John's, um, whatchamacallit, he's like a landowner. This whole series is basically just England's most eligible landlord, <laughs> when you think about it, because, and that's one thing I sort of posed with the whole upstairs-downstairs thing earlier, was, uh, yeah, these people... They, they, they're just landlords. They just own land and make money off of it. And then, like, marry and have, like, chapter-long sex scenes. You have no and, idea how uh, right you are. Yeah. So, so, when I asked about the whole, like, downstairs element, in addition to that, the servants in these books are nothing. No. It's like, especially books five and six, I can speak from experience. There is no like interest given to like the i don't know handmaidens or the butlers or the stewards or whoever it is they're all just like their entire purpose is to exist outside of the frame or come in at inopportune moments yeah and um, like, like where uh, something like downton like abbey half the plot is the intricacies of these uh servants lives 
and the dynamics and the tensions that exist between them and the people they work for. This book is totally, like, unconcerned with any of that, which was sort of a weird thing, considering that's, like, a dynamic that has always been present in a lot of the uh, period fiction that I read from this time. Uh-huh. And so it was just something that I just sort of, like, stuck out as I was reading. But anyway, I uh, forget what I was... Anyway, yeah, so uh, Francesca's husband dies. Michael be inherits his title, but uh, is so guilt-ridden by his feelings for Francesca and his desire for her, sort of like preventing him from being there for her emotionally in the wake of John's death. Uh -huh. So uh, he runs off to India for four years, and Francesca more or less becomes the caretaker of the land that her husband owned. And then Michael comes back, and uh, at a point when he's looking to get married, and at a point when Francesca is looking to get remarried, and then you get into this plot thread of, like, their sort of, like, uh, dueling courtships, mm -hmm. or, like, looking, looking around town, and then things sort of spool out from there. But those are the uh, arcs of the book, and it's... The thing that I think I found most interesting about them is that they happen almost concurrently. Like, uh, he when he when he was wicked starts before to Sir Philip with love, and then later on, and uh, when he was wicked, you become you become aware of the fact that the inciting incident of to Sir Philip has taken place off like like off in the world and uh it sort of like informs some events that happen in that case uh that book too so was there any of that uh, like narrative intertwining with uh, the first two books or were they too uh like too far apart chronologically there was there was a span of time in terms of the setting from the first book from Daphne's storyline and Anthony's storyline. I'm not exactly sure, but just because I can't remember all of the details of Anthony's book, um, I'm not exactly sure how far apart they happen from one another. But like Daphne and her love interest do make an appearance in Anthony's story because not only is Simon, that's, that's uh, Daphne's, love interest name not only is simon yeah, daphne's love interest but he is best friends with anthony daphne's brother okay so oh oh so yes. they do make an appearance in okay. anthony's book but it's very it's very quick and i don't recall a lot of interaction happening other than oh hey we haven't completely forgotten about these two people i don't know about all that because, uh, I mean, I'm sure it's interesting, but as far as, like, I guess a conceit for a book series is concerned, these later entries seem a lot more interesting to me, just by virtue of the fact that they are sort of, like, different angles on relatively concurrent events. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, I mentioned that books five and six uh, are chronologically overlapped. So, too, does it seem, is the plot thread for Colin Bridgerton. Mm. Uh, there, like, there's literally a point late in 
uh, when he was wicked, that a character is informed that the events of Colin's book have happened and the events of Eloise's book have happened. And then that revelation spurs on events uh, in the plot of when he was wicked. Okay. So that's, uh, I guess I'm making it sound a bit simpler than it is because there's also like an element of knowing when and under what circumstances certain things happen in a previous book that leads you to like look at, like look into events in later books with a sort of appraising eye. I'm feeling like as wild as it sounds, I might actually be intrigued enough to read a couple, at least a couple other books in the franchise, though I'm not really committed to seeing the whole thing out because one thing I think you mentioned when we uh, started looking into this series was that romance novels in general, they don't really require an understanding of previous and subsequent books to make sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, but that is that, correct. Uh, you can just sort of like pick them up as you go. Most of the time that is true. Um, and I will talk about the instances where that is not true in a few minutes. Okay, well, that sounds as good a time as any to call it a day for Bridgerton. <laughs> and when we get back from this... Uh, third and possibly final break, uh, we'll be looking more into what other stuff we've been reading this last little couple weeks. So we're going to take a short break and we will be right back. And we're back from our break. All right. So what, uh, what other stuff you've been up to Elizabeth? Okay. So in terms of like what I have been reading, I've read five books that are going to count for our year-long challenge and then I finished one book that I'm not gonna count for our year-long challenge because I did not start that book on January 1st. Okay now point of order we had discussed uh, including books that we read partially if it is for the purposes of finishing them after the fact so if you wanted to go back and say count out from what page you read most recently then that might be something you could incorporate unless you don't really have a sense of what all that was yeah i i don't really have a sense of what page i was on when you know january 1st happened um also i no longer have the book in my possession okay well just uh i guess going forward then we can establish that as a rule if so long as you are able to track how many pages you read uh, within this year for the purposes of finishing books that you had previously started, I think. um, And that'll obviously become less a factor as the year moves on, because I don't really think we'll be getting as much into that. Right. But uh, that's a, that's a uh, option that's on the table. Okay. And that's definitely something that we can keep in mind for season two. That'll be good. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about one of the books that I read that will count towards this challenge. Um, It was called Home Familiar Home by Belinda White. And it is book number four in the Accidental Familiar series. Okay. Are these like magical familiars? Yes. Okay. I was gonna, I was thinking that's where my mind went. Like I said, this is book number four. Um, I started the series. I read books one through three last year in 2020. And 
so as not to give too much away, I'll just kind of give an overall description of what kind of the series is about. So you have the main character, whose name is Amy, which is short for Amethyst. She is a non-magical being living in a household full of very powerful witches. Her, like her aunt, her cousin, her mom, they're all super powerful witches. Um, and poor Amy over here has not a drop of magic whatsoever. She's also is like a bonds person. So like she goes out and finds criminals who have skipped bail and that's how she makes her money. Anyway, events occur in her life to where she's like, I need to figure out how to utilize the itty bitty teeny tiny little bit of magic that I do have. So she finds a cat at the animal shelter and she kidnaps it (laughs) Mm. and she makes it her familiar and obviously the cat is not what it seems and neither is Amy and that's where the series goes on from there. So in this particular book, Amy and her cousin have moved out of their familial home and they're trying to figure out a way to financially afford living in their new home, um, which from the description is absolutely gorgeous. And so they take on a high stakes like bail bonds assignment and they run into all different kinds of twists and turns with that. So anyway, it's a cute, like they're super cute little books. They're, they're very, very clean. You know, there's not a whole lot of language. There's not a whole lot of sex. The language that is you, that the language that is used is pretty mild. Sex is just kind of alluded to in that it has happened There's no sex scenes like there were in Bridgerton. Um, Sure. This is a book I would very much feel comfortable recommending to mom. Okay. Well, I only read two other books apart from the Bridgerton ones. Okay. So uh, if you want to talk about another one. Okay, sure. So um, another, so the book that I, I'll very briefly touch on it because I'm not counting this book towards the challenge for reasons I've already stated. So the other book that I finished was for a, like a Litzy challenge. Um, okay. And it's where you sign up to be in a group of four and your group decides, like your, your group can decide like what kind of books you're going to read or you're all going to select books within a given genre. And then you each purchase your book and you read it and you mail it on to the next person. And while you're reading it, you're supposed to like, take notes and provide commentary within the margins of the book. Okay. Um, Yeah. I remember you talking about this. So my group chose the horror genre and the book that I read was the second book in the rotation. Um, and it is called the Crota. I'm sorry, just Crota by owl going back. It is very much a, monster mystery um sure there's a monster terrorizing a small town and the only one who can save them is the native american game warden who is also a shaman for the reservation that he lives on yeah okay um that sounds interesting so it is a very i enjoyed it overall um 
at times it was slow. The writing was a little strange. The language that was used was not something that I was familiar with. And there's no, there's no one way for me to put my finger on it. Okay. Okay. Um, but overall, I did very much enjoy the book. I'm glad it was recommended to me. Yeah, it was good. That's cool. All right, well, I'll go ahead with uh, one of my books now. The uh, uh, third book here that I finished, basically the same evening that I finished When He Was Wicked, uh, is called The Seventh Perfection by Daniel Polanski. And it's a uh, short little fantasy novella that I picked up at the library. And it's pretty interesting, largely for the purpose that it is told entirely from a first-person perspective with no input from the narrator. So the entire book has consisted consists of one-way conversations with people in this, uh, like, sort of vaguely fantastical city. And you always have to intuit what the narrator is saying to these people from their reactions. And uh, what the plot of the book is, is basically, uh, well, that's actually sort of the thing, is you learn what the plot of the book is by reading it. And that's obviously true for any book, but this especially since so much of it is of the story's uh, context and even the events of the story conveyed through um, implication. So suffice it to say the book takes place in a city where a sort of theocratic order is instated and one uh, member of this order is traveling about the city trying to learn information about a relic that may or may not put them on the wrong side of the powers that be and uh yeah so it's pretty interestingly written you get to hear a lot of interesting like character voices and just the intrigue of figuring out who people are in relationship to each other and what the full extent of this story world is is pretty neat but uh yeah i'd give it a recommendation so actually the next three books that i read were all part of the same series Um, okay i read all three books in the royals of arbon academy series um and those were written by jamin eve and tate james um book number one is called the princess or is called princess ballot book two is playboy princes and book three is poison throne and so basically this series takes place in a dystopian future that exists after a series or after a war called the monarch wars where basically all of the democracies and all of the forms of government around the world have been eradicated and have been replaced by monarchies i think the book said there's like 50 monarchies around the world um and the four well the three highest monarchies or the three most powerful monarchies are the switzerlands that's the most um that's the most powerful new america is the second and then australasia 
is the third. Okay. So those are the three most powerful monarchies. And basically there are academies um, stationed around the world where the children of the monarchs go to school to learn how to rule their countries. Oh. Or the children of the rich and the rich but not royal go to school to learn how to learn their craft. Right. Um so anyway, the main character, her name is Violet, and she is a she is in foster care. She is an orphan and she has turned 18. And in her mind, she's like, I'm 18 years old. I'm no longer a ward of the state. I'm going to go to state school and I'm just going to work hard and do my best and pull myself up by my bootstraps. Like that's very much her, her, you know, her deal. Okay. She was entered. She totally forgot she had done this, but she was entered into something that is called the princess ballot. Like that's the vernacular or that's the nickname for the ballot. But basically, right. the, um, the most prestigious university for royals, which is Arbonne Academy, does a ballot for the orphaned um, once every five years. And okay. you have to submit all this information. Like, you have to submit, like, a blood sample and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And they draw one person out of, like, over 15 million. And yeah. whoever is picked gets to go to school there. Like... You don't have to pay for tuition. You don't have to pay for room and board. They provide you a wardrobe. And anyway, Violet gets picked. Okay. And of course, as it is with these series, not everything is as it seems. Right. Um, Although I would say, uh, just to interrupt real quick, how great would it be if one of these books had that as a premise and then the person who was like fated to shape the world and whatever was not the main character. Right? It just like sets that up and then it's like and the hero of these stories is some other guy and then you just go on with your protagonist on like a slice of life story where world shaping events are vaguely happening outside the frame. That should be so great. Like that should totally happen. Yeah. Um somebody needs to write a book like that. So one of you one of you Amazon self-publishers make it happen. And I will say, I would not... Do you do you know what the term reverse harem is? Yes. So you, you are aware of that trope in romance. I am aware of that trope in anime, yes. Okay, so I yeah. would... <laughs> I guess it's the same. Um, yeah. So, well, you've seen um, Oran High School Host Club. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I've never seen it. I've read the manga... But I didn't right. read all of the manga, so I never really knew what happened. Right. Um, so anyway, like I would not go so far as to say that this book is a reverse harem style like love story, but it is an unconventional relationship love story. Okay. So if you are listening and you think this might be something that you're interested in, just be aware it, of that. Alrighty. Well, do you uh, want me to... I'll talk about my final book, Costa Alegre by uh, Courtney Malm. It's a book I bought a while back. It's this really beautiful hardcover edition where... And I guess more publishers are doing this, where the cover is printed directly onto the binding rather than, like, a dust jacket. I like <sighs> it. I like the idea. 
Yeah, I'm a fan of it. And um, the plot of this book is it's set during or in the lead up to World War Two, and it follows a uh, a uh, heiress and art patron named Leonora, I believe, and um, follows her and her sort of cadre of sponsored artists as they are fleeing uh, Germany from like uh, Hitler's. Uh, censorship reign or his uh basically his office of degeneracy who are like rounding up and either excommunicating or jailing like perceived deviants and uh so she helps all these artists that she's been uh hanging out with escape to uh mexico uh to the coastal town of costa alegre and uh they all just sort of hole up at this abandoned resort basically and just like live there with their uh wait staff and everybody and the book is told from the perspective of laura who is leonora's daughter and it's just sort of about her experience like dealing with the ennui of being a teenager of not having any of your friends or like support systems around you just having all these like sort of emotionally stunted adults around all the time and uh you get a real good vibe of like the exotic atmosphere about the uh sort of whispers of world events transpiring because like since they're out in the jungle they don't really get a lot of news uh so you're just sort of having like events in like the late to mid 1930s sort of trickling out and I would uh, really enjoyed it. It's uh, The book is told from Laura's perspective and is written in the style of her private journal. So there'll be passages that are like just daily entries and then there'll be more extended bits around like various dramatic events that take place. And then you'll also get passages that are just like notes that she makes or sketches that she draws because she too has her own artistic ambitions and uh the book kind of has like a weirdly sudden ending which i guess is appropriate for such a document uh-huh. but it does sort of have like a nice sense of uh like resolution about it and fun to fun fact the book is based on the real life story of uh uh miss guggenheim and her daughter uh Peggy Guggenheim and her daughter Peggyn. And uh, of course, you know, the Guggenheims were like, I guess, these, uh, I, mean, I don't know how they made their money, but you know what, you've heard of the Guggenheim. Yeah. Uh, I think museum or wherever. Yeah. So these were like, like actual people that this book was like based on research of. And essentially, Courtney Mount was just like reading up on these folks and wondering what it must have been like to like be a child during times like that so so yeah, it's really good and it's uh probably my favorite of the books i've read so far um i mean for this uh section of the competition yeah and that's gonna bring us into my favorite book for this section of the competition um which is actually a book that i finished reading today and it is called over the fairy hill and it is book number one in the 
Magical Midlife Misadventure Series by right. Jennifer L. Hart. Okay. So, a little bit of backstory before I actually get into what the book is about. You know, a lot of the books that I read and a lot of the books that... And, and I do read a lot of books that are available from Kindle Unlimited, um, which I've talked about fairly extensively so far on the podcast. A lot of the books that I read focus on young adults, young women who are anywhere from 18 to 25. Like, that's yes. the age range. Like, they are young, they are beautiful, they have their whole life ahead of them. Well, this book chooses to confront that trope. So, you have the main character, whose name is Joey. She's 42. Okay. And that's when she gets her magical adventure. Um, oh, well, that's nice. So, she's 42 years old. She is living with her mother. She is divorced. Um, and she has just, in her own words, just no direction in life. When she was younger, she had been an Olympic hopeful for gymnastics and circumstances prevented her from realizing that dream and she kind of never got over it okay so anyway she got married she was married for less than two years because reasons and now she's divorced and living with her mom when a very good-looking man who also happens to be a fairy comes into her life and gives her an offer she can't refuse and it kind of talks about how it very much explores the fairy tale of what you wish for may be not may not be what you really need or want. Yeah. So anyway, it's just it was a really good book. I, I you know, as a person who is in their mid thirties, like it was very empowering for me to read this. I was very much rooting for the main character. Um, I found her to be delightful despite her struggles and her self-doubt. And I would definitely recommend this book to anybody. All right. Well, that sounds good. And now that we've got all our books laid out, uh, you want to go ahead and reveal where our word totals stand at the moment? Yes. So for this section of the competition my word total from last week so for the past two weeks my word total has been three hundred three thousand eight hundred ninety four words which when combined with our last episode brings me a total of five hundred twenty five thousand five hundred and twenty two words Okay, and uh, from our last meeting, my word total was at 139,828 words, whereas now, uh, at, thanks in large part to those two Bridgerton books, it sits at, it sits at 459,222 words. So I am closing in on Elizabeth. You sure are. Yeah, I'll have to pick up some more Bridgertons on my way out. I was about to say those romance novels, man. They'll they'll bring your work. Yeah, total they, out. they'll they'll post up some numbers. Gonna say that about does it for this uh, week's episode. 
But uh, one last thing before we go. With my uh, accomplishing of the previous reading challenge laid out before me, I now have to receive a new one from my co-host Elizabeth. Why don't you tell us about it? Okay. So this challenge is based on a challenge I'm also going to be giving to myself that will not be reflected in this podcast. Um, Okay. The word count will be, of course, but I'm not issuing this challenge to myself. So as has become, I think, fairly apparent over the last couple of episodes, I tend to read, I tend to read like fantasy romance type books. Um, And those are very, very easy for me to read. And because they're easy for me to read, I tend to read more of them, but I really want to push myself as a reader and something that I want to be better about or that I want to incorporate into my reading knowledge is some of the classics. So, you know, some of those books like Frankenstein or um, Moby Dick, like stuff like that, stuff that, you know, you throw out the title of, and everybody has heard of it, but nobody or not very many people have necessarily read it. So my challenge to you, and what I will also be doing as well, actually I've kind of already started, is you are going to download the Serial Reader app. Okay. And it's well, it's Serial as in S-E-R-I-A-L. Right. And what the Serial Reader app does, by the way, this is totally not sponsored. Um, right. But what the Serial Reader app does is it takes the classics and it breaks it down. Oh, and it breaks I've it, heard of this. Yeah, and it breaks it down into daily like chunks that you can digest easier. So you're not sitting there with an 800 page book and you're like, I'm never going to get through this because I can't get through 40 pages. I'm just going to be done with it. Right. So it breaks it down into daily chunks that you just intake per day. And as long as you can keep up with it per day, you'll be able to read the classics within however many days the app tells you you can read them. So your challenge is to download the app, Pick a and pick a book to start before to start before your time is up. Now I'm not gonna say finish because there are some books that the serial reader app offers that it will take you more that it would take a person more than thirty days to finish. Okay. So like if you wanted to choose War and Peace, yes, like that's gonna take you more than thirty days. Okay. So your challenge is to download the Serial Reader app, choose one of the books that it offers, and get started on your daily reading. Okay. Uh, that is, that's going to be fun. That's a really nice challenge, Elizabeth. Thank you. Yeah, and I, uh, I'm looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to talking with you again next time when we'll be checking up on your reading challenge and issuing you a new one. Yep. And until that day comes, gentle listener, I have been your co-host, Thomas Dempsey. And I have been your co-host, Elizabeth Connor. And as always, we're going to see you off with a, uh, uh, bye. (laughs) Goodbye. Yep.